1: Segments that we do on this show, and I'm left thinking to myself. And sometimes I actually say, "Has it been a week already?" I feel like we just did this, and yet there are some segments that we do where the gap between consecutive segments feels, if not like a a lifetime, certainly a long time. The hour that you are about to hear is not only a personal favorite of mine, it is not only a key characteristic of what I believe has helped make this show so successful, but it's an hour that I feel like we haven't done in six weeks, even though we just did it two weeks ago. That's right. It is time for us to boldly go into space. It is time for us to look at the final frontier with a man who not only has a great voice, but a man who has a great deal of knowledge regarding all things related to space. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back. A personal Morano fave, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a podcaster with the Dr. Sky Experience, which you can listen to at redapplepodcastnetwork.com and a contributor to uh, WABC Radio in New York. Steve, it has been a long two weeks. Welcome back.
2: Well, thank you, Frank. Good morning to you and the listeners as we move on to what? The infinite side of midnight for the hour with your okay and. Seems like all those, you know, things are moving in our direction to talk about these great subjects. So it's always a privilege and honor to be here.
1: So there are some issues that we talk about relating to space that don't necessarily jive with the geopolitical news that a lot of uh, P1 talk radio listeners might be interested in. And then there's others that dovetail quite nicely. Uh, One of the ones that I think checks off the space topic list and the geopolitical topic list is this mysterious China spy plane that has returned to Earth after a nine-month orbital mission. Dr. Skye, what can you tell us about this airplane? What do we know about it? What's it been doing? And should people be concerned?
2: Well, first of all, Frank, it's interesting to talk about this because it looks like China seemingly copies so many of the different form factors. If you look at some of the military aircraft, like the F-22 Raptor, if you look at their version of that, it looks as if somebody took the plans, whether they got them clandestinely or just simply you know, copied them. And what does it have to do with the space plane? Well, the Space Force has had for a number of years a little miniature space shuttle called the X-37B space plane. And its mission is pretty much classified. We were told, I don't know how much we can believe, that its intent was to go up and test new, new rocket-type engines called xenon power. But now we find out that China has a similar type of space plane, maybe not exactly the same form factor. But it's been operational in space now for some 276 days on its second flight. Back in October of 2022, the space plane somehow, or whatever we call this thing, Chinese space plane technology, ejected something into space, maybe a small surveillance satellite, out of the space plane. And they also claim, that is, our reconnaissance and intelligence tells us, that apparently it docked with a small object, which we know from the NORAD side of the equation, called Object J. How general can you be, right? So what's interesting about the Chinese space plane, who knows what it's really up to? Now, some theories, now, not to go on the jingoistic war side of the whole thing here, but some say that its real intent up there is not only to test you know, new propulsion systems, but that it also has this grappling hook on it that it can actually go next to a satellite, Maybe pull in a satellite, or who knows? Maybe there's some other nefarious things on there. When you have a grappling arm, you can do a lot of things, maybe damage satellites. But let's not jump to conclusions. But the point I'm trying to make here, very simply, I think it's coming across loud and clear, is that China has advanced so quickly in so many forms of space exploration, it's just mind-boggling. Take a look at the Mars mission that they had. They were the first to do all three types of Mars events, meaning they sent the space probe... They sent a descent module, and they had a rover come out of it, not in a long time period, but all in one fell swoop. So whatever they're doing in space – and by the way, here's another quick side story many people may not know. They examined every single frame of the new satellite launch, of course, the big one that Elon Musk just sent up with Starship. They examined every single video frame to see what went wrong there because they're also developing, very simply – some very high powered rocket engines just like the raptors that are on the you know starship and Elon Musk rockets really interesting what they're doing in space
1: it certainly is and by the way i was remiss in not giving our telephone number if people would like to uh, ask dr sky a question you could certainly do so at 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 uh, in terms of why china is becoming so aggressive in terms of being a space-faring, space-exploring nation when that wasn't necessarily their interest years ago. Do we have an idea? Something tells me it's not all about science that they have. I don't want to make it sound too sinister, but they have some sort of ulterior motive other than just exploration. Are there theories about why China has gotten so aggressive in space exploration?
2: Well, I think you've answered it pretty much. I mean, in your opinion and many other people's opinion, they're doing things to protect their homeland and also maybe what? Take homeland or take other people's homelands, I should say. But the interesting thing about it is it's done in a different way. Like look at the whole Taiwan situation, which could take hours. And I'm sure you've had great guests talking about the potential or the nearly coming invasion by the People's Republic of China to the island nation of Taiwan. But In the space arena, I think they do it primarily for the military side of the equation because, remember, most if not all of what China does in space is not a civilian type of space program like we have here when we have what Starlink is doing, you know, Elon Musk with the whole program of SpaceX and also Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin. So I think it's more for the military because their space station, which is Tiangong – and by the way, I just watched it the other night. You can see it just about any clear night – It sails across the sky as a bright star-like object. And when I point that out to people, like friends and neighbors, they go, oh, no, that's an airplane. I said, oh, no, that's China's latest monster spaceship. So I do think they're doing it for surveillance. They're doing it for many military reasons, all because... It's under the house of their military and the whole military doctrine.
1: How do, And we're going to get into what you can see coming up with the, our live sky report shortly. Sure. But how do people know if something they're seeing in the, the night sky? Obviously, you've got a little bit more of a trained eye than most of us. But for people that are looking up and see something, how do they know if it's a space station like the one that you described or an sure. airplane or
2: something else? Well, it's a very good question, Frank. But but here's the simple thing: I look at so many things in the sky, and I see them. And many times they could be aircraft. Not necessarily do all aircraft have you know positive blinking, flashing lights. If they're way up in the sky, you may not be able to discern that. But the simplest way to do it, and I always promote this website because it's a free thing, and everybody should put it on their phone, and I'm sure many have. It's just heavens-above.com. You get the screen. You put in your your city where you're located. And lo and behold, voila you 've got this whole listing of spacecraft that you can see and always go to the ones that are brighter in magnitude and making it simple the higher the the higher the number in magnitude in this case on the plus side is fainter, so you want things that have like a zero or a negative number in magnitude in the space station. My goodness it 's as bright as Venus many times. Tiangong is easy to see like I mentioned with the naked eye, it gets as bright as some of the brighter planets, but it's really hard sometimes to tell because remember the thing's going seventeen thousand miles an hour, but the simplest and easiest way to answer it is these spacecraft seemingly have steady light, not like the you know flashing and blinking lights that you'd see on most aircraft.
1: Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me begin with John in Freehold. Hello there, John. John, we got you. Good morning, John. All uh, right. Um, I just had a quick question about, uh, uh, Steve, have you ever heard of Project Gateway?
2: Mm, uh, Yes, I have. If you're referring to the space station that's to be built on the outside of the moon as a gateway to when the astronauts go to the surface of the moon, if that's what you're talking about, it would be a space station in orbit around the moon as a transition point. So they don't have to do the long-duration mission. Back to the Earth. Is that where you're going with that, or that's what I would call it? The-
1: no, it's actually a, a different uh, project.
2: In, oh, I'm sorry. Um,
1: <laughs> sorry, it was done by the CIA, but they figured out that um, using um, binaural beats, uh, two different frequencies in each ear, it will activate your brain, and um, you're, able, you're able to um, enter different dimensions. i was wow. just curious if... Yes. Yeah, I'm not up that. on that either, John. No, but, uh, I
2: don't have anything to share. I, but I thought he was referring to the Gateway Space
1: Station. I'm very interested in that, though, John. If you have oh, any absolutely. information no, that, hey, you could, hey. that you could send me, I'd love to read it and uh, hey. and explore it on a uh, and on a future program. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Good question. I did want to ask you about this, Steve, and uh, mm-hmm. I think John Katsimatidis might have asked you about it on the Cats Roundtable Sunday yeah. morning, and that is this uh, recent reports of ancient riverbeds on Mars, and there are uh, – all indications are because of this Mars Perseverance rover – Yes. that uh, there could have been water on Mars a long time ago that was very similar to the kind of water that uh, that we have on Earth. Uh, what do we know about this, Steve? And are we seeing, in looking at Mars, Earth's distant, distant future?
2: Well, it's interesting. Where did the water go on Mars is usually the question that I get in many of the programs we do. And obviously the answer is nobody knows. But the recent revelation by this particular spacecraft, Perseverance, traveling through an area called Gale Crater, and they did this for a reason. They looked at all the topographic images that were taken by orbiting Martian spacecraft, and they said, ah, over here is an area that looks like it's the bottom of a delta or a riverbed. Now, I can't say or nor, nor can anybody actually confirm that they've drilled and found, you know, flowing water there. But the remnant of that whole, you know, story of where water came or maybe was on the surface of Mars definitely is more likely to be in that shallow area like dry clay or rock. So what they think they found is evidence of a real true riverbed that's on the surface of the planet Mars. As I mentioned to Mr. Katsimatidis on the show, the interesting thing is if there is more water on Mars, it's more than likely subterranean, and that's going to take a long time for exploration. But the answer to the question of where did the water go on Mars, it's more than likely, Frank, that a large asteroidal object slammed into the surface of Mars, The deepest depression, if you look at a Martian globe, is a region called Hellas. And that's more likely the remnant of a large asteroidal body that slammed into the surface of Mars. And at that time, maybe hundreds of millions of years ago, we're not sure, may have vaporized all of the water on the surface in this giant-like nuclear explosion. And now revelations are talking about one of the two Martian moons, the two that were discovered in the Washington, D.C. area in 1877 by Asaph Hall, one is called Phobos, a strange object that may have a, you know more hollowness to it, but the one that they think might have come from an impact, and it actually came out as a piece of Mars, is the other small Martian moon called Deimos. So we don't know if there's water. It's probably under the surface.
1: Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. William is in Westchester. Hello, William.
0: Hi. Back in the 50s, uh, right. high-altitude bombers used to be
2: used to launch rocket planes. Wondering... Uh, at high altitude, you've overcome the effects of gravity. Why not uh, routinely launch satellites from high altitude planes? And for that matter, uh, modules could be launched uh, to support a moon base, uh, sending Absolutely. up uh, supplies and equipment. Why, why don't they ever uh, approach that point, uh, William? Strategy? They've tried it, and actually, they had an experience where one of the 747s that was that was actually equipped with a satellite delivery system, but unfortunately, the funding ran out. But if you really think about it, it's really not the most economical way to launch satellites into space. Still, if you look at you know how much it costs to lift, say, 1,000 pounds into space or 200 pounds into space, it still goes with the ground-based rocket, chemical rockets that we have today. But it's interesting. If you look in the history of aviation, I'm studying this and actually was a big fan of the pilots that flew this. It was the xb 70 the most amazing bomber that the Kennedy administration actually got funding for for two of these. And I'm so near and dear to that topic because if you take a look at an XB-70 Valkyrie, I have one on my desk here. I know a long time ago, William, I had an interview with one of the test pilots there, and they were going to use that particular platform not only as a nuclear bomber. Curtis LeMay wanted to see it, but Robert McNamara wanted to cancel it because he said we're wasting our money of launching anything off of an airplane like that or dropping bombs because of ICBMs. But if people take a look, Frank, at the XP-70 Valkyrie, I'm kind of like uh, really stuck on that airplane because it it flew at Mach 3 or more. We had the honor of knowing the different pilots that flew it, and one of them sadly had an in-flight accident back in June of 1966. Mm. A good friend of ours, Clay Lacey, who owns one of the biggest private jet corporations in America, he was a pilot on this Learjet where they got somewhat semi okay to have all these GE engine jets fly together with the B 70. And uh, this gentleman who flew the F 104, they all got kind of close. The vortex of that giant aircraft, William, this is fascinating. He got, Joe Walker got caught up in the vortex of that. It slammed itself into the B 70, tore it to pieces. Oh, my. And it crashed, and my brother, with his whole group, Photorecon.net, if you want to see some great aviation stories, they actually went to the crash site and still dug up, I have it here on my desk, some of the titanium pieces of that. So they actually put a little memorial out there to those two pilots that crashed. Could you imagine this giant 276-foot-long monster bomber coming down out of the sky in flames and pieces? And one of the guys got out, but Al White, this is really quickly, I'll mention it, He hit the ground when the chute system didn't work inside this encapsulation module. I'd get a load of this, 42 Gs. Can you imagine hitting the ground?
1: No, I can't.
2: He (laughs) survived. But anyway, William, I know that's a long answer to a good story, but the reason they simply don't use this type of aircraft to launch rockets, it's not as economical as you would probably think. And this has been tried with a... I'm trying to think of the guy who's the billionaire. See, I'm I'm losing it here. The gentleman who had the... uh, The big 747s, he had the airline.
1: Uh, Are you thinking of Richard Branson?
2: Yes. Sorry, I couldn't think. He had this aircraft, a 747, that actually tried to do this, but I don't know if funding ran out or it wasn't as economic. But the bottom line is we see chemical rockets still. Just ask Elon Musk, and he'll show you the numbers. It's still more economical to do it from the ground than up there, even though the atmosphere is conducive. To launchers. Since you mentioned that
1: era, the Cold mm-hmm. War, the 50s, uh, some of the people involved, mm-hmm. you even mentioned nukes. There's something, there's a forgotten aspect of American history, which we actually didn't come to learn until about 20 years ago. But I have to think it's one of the most fascinating what ifs in American history. And that has to do with... Project A one one nine. If people okay. are not familiar with this, Steve, yes. what was Project A one one nine?
2: Well, let's start off. with the answer goes like this: When we found out that is America that Sputnik was launched, and by the way, when people saw Sputnik in the sky, in other words, if you see something over your head, like you see bombers would drop bombs, people of course have right to be, you know, nervous and scared or prepared. Well, when you had this thing from television at the time and radio saying the Soviets have now put up this spacecraft called you know Sputnik, you weren't actually seeing the Sputnik satellite. It was so tiny, but it was actually the Samyorka rocket, which was the booster rocket that you saw going around the Earth. But here's the story. Since we were so concerned, if not the word nervous, about what the Soviets could do, oh, my goodness, now they could drop an atomic bomb on our head, they thought, and they probably could have. So Project A119 – was this concocted project, kind of crazy, and it goes back to authors. This is bizarre. I read this, and I had to read it three times and check it. Apparently, this plan, the plan was this. They were going to the government, the United States government, detonate a thermonuclear weapon on the surface of the moon. They send a rocket there and send the hydrogen bomb. You know, the hyd- hydrogen bomb power is a much more massive power than the simple atomic bomb. Both are pretty nasty. But they would fire a rocket to the moon along the Terminator. Now, what's that? That's the light and dark line you see on the moon. If you have a telescope, the shadows are best and you're you're in love. They would detonate this hydrogen bomb for the main purpose of, quote, scaring the Soviets to know that we weren't a bunch of dummies, that we had the capability to actually do things and destroy things. Now, the Soviets, being smart too, they had a similar plan known as E-4. But what I was so amazed about is one of the authors of the original project that we talked about, A-119, was none other than Carl Sagan. Go figure. Isn't that a bizarre thing? And
1: I want to be clear. This plan uh, yes. that uh, to th- drop a thermonuclear weapon on the moon, <laughs> this yes. is not science fiction. This is not conspiracy no. stuff. This is fact.
2: This is fact. Now, this is so bizarre because think about this, everyone listening to this. Pay attention to this because you already know this, but here we go. I'll say it for the record. When you would have detonated a nuclear weapon on the surface of the moon, because the lunar surface is one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, all that residual material – and let's just speculate the power of that hydrogen bomb. Let's say it was up to 15 megatons, which is probably pretty characteristic, the average you know, hydrogen bomb delivery power. That material, where's it going to go? So you're going to send fragmentation all up out of the lunar surface since the gravity is so weak. Where's it going to go, Frank? It's going to spiral out since the moon is going around the Earth into this long tendril, like a long snake of of debris. And guess where it's coming? To a neighborhood near you and I. (laughs) Imagine that. You're going to have these chunks as big as a car maybe coming through the atmosphere. So obviously cooler heads prevailed. But no, that wasn't sci-fi. That was actually a plan. Crazy amazing
1: all right we 're going to take a quick break we 'll get back to your calls in a moment Phil Neil, Robert Hudson, Angela, and everybody else that 's holding we 'll uh, try and get to as many of your questions as we can. still have three open lines if you want to uh, if you want to jump on board with a question eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 that 's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two this is the other side of this is the infinite side of midnight, I should say with dr sky i 'm Frank Marano
0: straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A N A C O O L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: singing a thousand stars. We have the man that knows the stars as well as anyone on radio. He certainly sounds better than anyone on radio. The one and only Steve Cates. We call him Dr. Sky. If you're interested in some of the subjects that we're talking about today, you're going to want to check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, which you can uh, listen to on redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. A lot of people queuing up uh, to talk with you, Steve. Let's try and get to as many of these as we can. Our buddy Neil is in Staten Island. Hello, Neil.
2: Hey, Doc. You're the Good best morning. doctor in the world. The only doctor Thanks. I could talk to without worrying mm. that you're going to put on an examination glove. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love you, Neil. How you doing there? I got I got a double question for you. Yes, sir. Number one, uh, when Reagan was president and the Russians started with the space stuff, he mm-hmm. He scared them by saying, you know, we have Star Wars and we're going to send up ships and actually control space so we can shoot down anything they have. Did that ever really happen? Absolutely. And that was the main reason that I think the whole thing fell apart with the Soviet Union, too, because President Reagan, as you mentioned very accurately and correctly, he talked about we have the capability now to do things that are just literally like science fiction, but they're not. They're reality. So things, of course, that we'll never be able to know about. I mean, there's certainly different type of weapons. They developed what they call kinetic energy weapons, Earth language. They had these objects that were in space that you could fire. And one of the projects was something called Rods from God. I know this sounds like science fiction. They would have this satellite in space that had the capability of firing. And any of our Army friends out there, I'm an Army veteran myself, might know this if they were artillery or tankers inside some of those projectiles they have these flechette type little missiles they're made out of like solid tungsten well what rods from gods were or rods from god that a spacecraft in space wouldn't have to use any type of atomic weapon it would be able to fire from space one of these like larger scale tungsten rods and it would come through the atmosphere at such great speed and it would just obliterate anything without using a chemical weapon or even an explosive charge you could add an explosive charge but for the tankers and people who are Army veterans and you serve, let's say, in the tank corps, you'll know that if you looked at one of these – I had one of these in my office once. Somebody gave me one. It's this long thing that weighs about 50 pounds, and it comes out of the, you know, the bore of that tank. But the flechette, meaning it has like a plastic enclosure, it opens up. It comes out of there at over like 5,000 feet per second. And let's say that tungsten rod or depleted uranium is what they actually used. Ouch. It would hit the side of the tank, go through it, and incinerate every single thing inside it, not to get too graphic this early in the morning, Neil. But all you'd see the hole go in and the other side, there was a red stream of uh, vapor. You can figure out what was happening inside that tank when it heated it up. So they had these type of weapons, and it's probably so many other things, laser weapons. The military developed a large uh, 747. A good friend of mine was the chief scientist on it. It was called the Airborne Laser System. This big 747 with a funny-looking nose had this turret, and supposedly its capability was to shoot down a chemical – it was a chemical laser. Imagine that, Frank, from the air. You could fire this laser Uh. at incoming ICBMs. They scrapped it. So, Neil, sorry for the long explanation, but uh, yeah, but you had a second part. Yes, the second part is that uh, when Frank goes up into space, he wants to smoke a good Dutch master, and he likes his his quarterhouse steak. (laughs) <laughs> so I never heard of any animals going up into space except yes. the monkey. The Russians, I think, sent up a monkey astronaut. No, I actually, yeah, but, uh, I heard the shit. <laughs> but, no. But it's so it funny you bring it up, animals in space. You know, the very the Soviets at the time, they have. I mean, I have this book called Space Dogs, and my my better half and I have a beautiful little Bashan dog. She gets better treatment, Frank, than I get. Oh, I enough for me. The, she goes to the groomer it. like twice a month and gets imported food flown in. So, hey, how about that? And I eat the you know the TV dinner still. But anyway, if you look at this, Neil, this is so interesting. There were dogs. Laika was this dog that the Russians actually found on the streets of Moscow. This is the story. They wanted a tough dog. So if you did one of these, you know, like Disney movies, the cartoon thing, you'd find this dog walking and talking real tough. But Laika, God bless, it was one of the, if not the first dog in space. And, of course, Laika perished in space. So many other dogs. There was a bunch of little cute Russian names. And, uh, yeah, the Russians uh, actually had animals. And a quick story, Neil. I know I'm going on into the infinite side of midnight here, right, Frank?
1: Hey, you're welcome so, to stay for a second hour. I'm not <laughs> kicking you.
2: <laughs> no, no. Here's the interesting story, Neil. There was a story, and I talked to a gentleman named Gunter Vent. Who was he? He was the pad leader. He put every astronaut, when you go up in that like elevator, he was the guy, a German gentleman from World War II. He came here with the thickest German accent. He, he passed on, but he was a great guy. I did an interview with him. He said to me, he put every astronaut in those days, even the Apollo, into the capsules. And Wally Schirra one day wondered where, you know, he didn't see Gunther. So he just said in his comical way, I wonder where Gunther went. But the point of reason I'm mentioning this is, this is so amazing how they, this whole thing came together with the space program. They had these monkeys or small little, I guess they were just monkeys, and apparently some of them got a little wild. So some of the congressmen and senators came down there, and they were praying that the monkeys would be nice and wouldn't do anything foolish or bite them because they wanted funding. So this is an, you know, a family program, so I'll say it the, 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 the politically correct way. Apparently what happened is, is one of the congressmen or senators got close to the cage the monkey actually scooped up some excrement and threw it at one of, the, as one of the members of Congress. So somehow they still got their funding. But I don't know. Maybe the monkeys knew something.
1: Hey, but w- in terms of Neil's question about yes. what astronauts generally eat in space, right. Do you have any idea what the diet of an
2: astronaut is like?
1: What kind of food they're eating?
2: Well, I do know this. They still use Tang. No kidding. Of course not. Hey, <laughs> I should. like Tang. I did too. But anyway, seriously, I'm not too sure what that diet is, but it's not the kind of miserable food that they had in the early 60s and 70s. This obviously has the ability, I'm sure, to create nourishing meals, but you have to do this. You have to have meals I gather in space, and let's be you know, real easy on how I say this here, politically correct. You have to have low-residue meals in space for obvious reasons, because the toilet system on the ISS, this is actually comical to some and sad to others, they replaced the toilet a while ago with like a million dollar toilet imagine that if you got to had paid monthly payments but the reason for the million dollar toilet is you have to make a perfect seal and you know the rest of the story of how sure. it goes but in space you want what you want low residue type meals so i would gather i'm not you know uh, the uh, person who understands that side the dietitian but you have to have low residue type stuff. You don't want stuff that's going to cause a lot of harm because when stuff floats around up there, sure. that's not a nice experience. Oh no, 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 that's
1: for sure. Uh, <laughs> one of the issues you first brought to my attention, and I suspect the attention of many of our listeners, and yes. I really didn't, even, never even heard the term before. If I or if I heard it, it went one ear and out the other. It's uh, the solar cycle that we're now in, right. solar cycle twenty five. And uh, there's a lot of people saying that solar activity may peak a year earlier than we thought. Remind folks, what exactly is uh, solar cycle 25? What does that mean? And where are we with respect to it right now?
2: Well, every 11 and a half years or so, the sun supposedly seethes and then kind of, you know, up and down this ebb and flow of sunspot activity. But here's what's happening. Solar cycle 25, since you go back and multiply it out, that's how long we've been tracking solar cycles. But if you look at the age of the sun, Frank, 4 billion years, we've only just scratched the surface. So what's happening right now as we speak, the live report, the sun just belched out an M9.6 flare just hours ago. And I'm going to build this up here, but it's not dramatic. It's fact. There's a massive sunspot group that's coming around the southeastern edge of the sun. It already blew out a massive flare when it wasn't even on the visible side of the sun. So a few days from now, maybe tomorrow, I'll get the solar telescope out. And people just go to spaceweather.com. If you do that right now, you'll be able to see the live image. It might be on the left edge of the sun. But what's happening is these sunspot chains, when they snap, the magnetic fields can be unstable. The M9.6 flare that just happened hours ago actually induced some static and some interference over North America for HF frequencies, So if you're flying, say, from Los Angeles, New York, to like London, or you're flying the bigger routes, let's say Los Angeles, all the way to Kuwait or Dubai, you're going up near the poles. So HF radio is being interfered with the higher frequencies. But here's something interesting. There was a massive event on the sun on April 24th, and I think we talked about it in our last uh, adventure here on this Infinite program. There was this massive event on the sun which causes the auroras to be seen lower latitudes than probably anywhere. People in Florida were seeing them. But it wasn't because of a sunspot group. There are these things that float above the sun. They're massive fields of cooler material called filaments. And if you see these images, you know, with these solar telescopes, you see these big black lines. Some of them are as long as the distance from the Earth to the Moon. When one of those filaments, Frank, comes up above the sun's atmosphere, supposedly, and that's what they call it. And slams back into the sun. All that energy that's released is a different type of flare. It's called a hider flare. So that was the the, the culprit behind the big event that happened on the April 24th date, causing a geomagnetic storm of about a G4, almost maybe even a G5. There's more to come. So that cycle, to answer your question, may not peak as early as some say, but it could be way more intense, not to alarm people. But certainly not off the charts, as some predictions were, that we're going to see these massive solar storms. Nobody really knows for sure.
1: Not to be uh, too selfish here about what this means for us, but we have seen solar flares interfere with things like uh, radio transmission from time to time. Is there anything about this current solar cycle and the level of solar activity within it that will cause people to have, I don't know, different radio reception than they normally are used to?
2: Well, in the AM band, and again, let's pray to God we keep the AM band. I know that's a big campaign here on this particular station. And in many stations, hey, I mean, we all grew up with it, not just from the love affair of AM radio, you know, we'd lay in bed when we were kids and we'd just tune into these stations. You could say, hey, mom and dad, I just heard a station, if you like say in New York, you heard somebody out there in uh, the Midwest or even down south in Texas. But the thing is, these solar storms, they do have this deleterious effect on the atmosphere and Now, with so many spacecraft up there, just imagine, in the 1950s, before the advent, let's see, early 50s, of nothing in the sky but, you know, beautiful stars and meteors and such and comets, now the sky is filled with stuff, all susceptible to even the slightest quark from radiation from the sun. But we find out that during this period of solar activity, when we see the solar activity peak, we're seeing something where the cosmic ray induction into the solar system is either higher or lower So when you have a higher solar activity, there's a change in the amount of cosmic rays that are coming in. So the sun, even though it's peaking, could have a good effect on us as far as giving us less of these cosmic rays. That can be really dangerous uh, for people who fly on airplanes all the time too many times. You're getting slight radiation, not to scare people, not to go on a commercial airplane, but there's rad detectors that one group has where they can actually tell you, how much radiation you're getting if you're punching way above that precious atmosphere layer. Think about it this way. Many have described the troposphere where the, you know, the weather sphere of the Earth. If you took an apple, the troposphere is only as thick as the thinness of the skin on an apple. Isn't that incredible? That precious layer is that thin, and that's so much vital for us to breathe and protect us from the ultraviolet that comes from space.
1: And that is for sure. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. 2-2, that's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Phil is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Phil.
0: Yeah, hi. Uh, I've got a question for Dr. Sky. Good morning, sir. Thank uh, you. Concerning the two theories of the universe, the two prominent theories, you've got yeah. the steady state theory and you've got the Big Bang. Yeah. I understand the battle is still raging on, and they're, just, they're trying to rework the cosmological constant one way or the other. What's the latest developments? Do you know of anything interesting? I, I can answer
2: this. No, Phil, your question is absolutely wonderful. And in the time of audit, here's what I would say. Fred Hoyle, a scientist, came up with the concept of a steady state theory, which was counter to what we know of a big bang, and I call it the big expansion, because it wasn't really a big, uh, you know, big bang. It was an expansion out of nothing. So what we're talking about here is very interesting. What we're trying to define in physics and quantum physics, this is, this is the conundrum that even Einstein couldn't even figure out. We're trying to take the special theory of relativity and general relativity, which that pretty much has been proven to be accurate. You know, speed of light, the excess, the, the what's beyond the speed of light, we're really not sure. But when you try to meld quantum physics into the theory with relativity, scientists are still at this great conundrum. They're trying to come up with the TOE, the theory of everything in which you can balance out and make the whole theory work for how the universe works. It's kind of a little egotistical for humans to think that way, don't you think, Phil, that we're going to figure this out? Because it's so complicated. So how do you get quantum physics to work in the general relativity side? That's the difficulty in space right now. In other words, what we're finding out is that one and one may not be two in the simple math thing when you're talking about quantum physics. And the final thing I'll mention, Frank, to Phil is this is very interesting. Now we're seeing evidence that this whole concept called quantum entanglement, very detailed subject, simply means this, that now Einstein may not have been totally correct in saying that nothing can exceed the speed of light. It's that if you had a switch on one side of our galaxy, let's say the whole thing is 150,000 light years, you would take that light beam 150,000 years to go to the other side. But in this concept called uh, It's just so amazing that it would happen instantaneous. So what's the mechanism that's driving it if it's not light? Something that we don't understand in quantum physics called quantum entanglement. There's many realms to discuss and many dimensional planes. I hope that answers some of them, Phil.
1: Thank you, (laughs) Phil. Um, There was a headline that uh, caught my interest the other day. Because recently, I think it was on Jeopardy or maybe somewhere else, there was a a trivia question that I came across that had to do with the first Voyager mission and all the interesting things from the 1970s that um, that people were hopeful about for that first Voyager mission. Now we have Voyager 2, and the headline last week said NASA is keeping Voyager 2 going until at least 2026 by tapping into – backup power.
2: Explain this for us, Steve. Well, the spacecraft, the twin spacecraft, if we all remember what we were doing in 1977, and I lived in New York that time, and many people listening who are listening right there at WABC, we know in July, I think it was, we had the Great Blackout. So we remember not the original Blackout, like 65, but the one then. So think of how long ago that was. So these two spacecraft were launched out into space in two different directions, robotic spacecraft That are powered, they have a nuclear power system on them, so they obviously can't grab solar energy from the distance that they are. So, one of them, Voyager 2, is about 12 billion miles, not 12 billion light years, but 12 billion miles from us. It takes about 17 hours to send a signal to turn on whatever instruments are still working, God bless it. But the Voyager 1 is actually 14 billion miles out into space, so Voyager 2 is getting a little bit of a boost. Because you would have thought that the lifetime of those two spacecraft would have been over quite a long time ago. Even the scientists are very amazed that these things are still working. And it goes out into the deepest part of the solar system or beyond now. It moved out from an area we call the heliopause. And what is that? The sun has this stream of particles called solar wind, like if you had a garden hose to make it sound simple. The farthest reach of that garden hose that you could push with the finest little water stream, you know, the most powerful. The solar system is filled with the solar wind from the sun. But these two spacecraft have moved beyond the energy field of the sun. So they're headed out into space. And I forget the exact, I'm a sci-fi lover too, but one of the Star Trek movies.
1: Star Trek, the motion picture.
2: There you go. And it took what? It turned the thing into this object. I think her name was Persis Cambata. The uh, Indian actress. Yeah, yeah, V'ger. V'ger, you got it. So V'ger became what? This intelligent being almost, the artificial being out in space. And little did they know until, I guess, the end of the movie, and I guess I'm being a movie spoiler if you haven't seen it, they found out that that was what? A spacecraft that was sent from none other than planet Earth, the pale blue dot.
1: Yeah, no one's made it to the end of that film. It's the film that never ends. So uh, I don't think you're worried about. We shouldn't worry about spoiling well, the end of that film. I, I love, I right. love Star Trek, and there's a yeah. lot of good parts to that. But that yeah. movie is slow. All right, uh, we're going to continue in a moment with your phone calls for Doctor Sky eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the infinite side of midnight, and much like Star Trek, the motion picture, the human adventure is just beginning. Straight ahead
0: other side of midnight. For an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano. Blue moon. You saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart. Without a love of my own Blue Moon You knew just
1: what I was there for. You heard me saying a prayer for someone I really could care for. Any blue moons in our future? Well, we've got Doctor Skye, Steve Cates, to uh, fill us in on that. Uh Steve Uh, We'll get back to the phones in just a minute, but uh, tell me what can we look forward to in the sky-gazing month of May?
2: Well, perfect segue, Frank. Early this morning, the 17th, wherever people are listening, if you have a clear view of the pre-dawn sky, get set for this. There's going to be an amazing event. The moon, which will only be about 5% illuminated, you know, the thin little crescent, it will occult or cover up the planet Jupiter. Now you have to be like for the East Coast, sunrise, let's say in New York, is like five thirty seven AM Eastern Daylight Time. But if you get out there about forty five minutes before sunrise and you have a clear sky. Now let me be always honest here. This will only be about five degrees up in the sky. So if you have big buildings in the way, you may not be able to see it or clouds. But if you do, like here in Arizona, at around four eighteen our time, mountain standard time, since we don't do daylight saving time, you would see the moon and the planet Jupiter, as if it was – the Jupiter would be hugging the left edge, the bright side, literally on the edge. And it will disappear for much of the west. In the eastern part of the nation, it will be happening during sunrise. So in other words, unless you're a super-trained observer with a telescope. But here out in the mountain states, you'll be able to see it pop out the other side, the dark side, at 5:12 a.m. So simply, if you have a chance to see early morning, this morning, coming up in just a few hours – get out those binoculars, you've got a clear sky, you're going to see a beautiful conjunction or maybe what they call an occultation when the moon is going to eclipse Jupiter. Very beautiful, very rare. The stuff of biblical stories like that of what the three wise men apparently saw pretending and, you know, bringing on the birth of Jesus. Interesting.
1: Well, absolutely, and I'm glad that you brought this to my attention, because last night I started a cigar outside and I had to stop it so that I could brush my son's teeth and put him to bed, and huh? that cigar remains half unfinished in my backyard, and now I have an excuse to go out and finish <laughs> yes. that cigar after yes. the show as I do some moon gazing. All uh, right. 800-848-9222. All right, uh, Steve, you're in a little bit of trouble potentially because Uh two weeks ago I, uh, I brought to your attention a call that I had gotten the previous week. From a very, very, um, I don't know how else to put it, sexy-sounding young lady asking if you were married. And um, we played your answer. We gave your answer. But uh, now Jacqueline in Brooklyn has returned with a question. Hopefully, it's of a more celestial nature. Hello, Jacqueline. Good morning, Frank, and good morning, Steve.
2: Hey, good morning.
1: Um, I do have a a follow-up question. So now i got... The first answer to my first question, which is if you are available, because I think you're very handsome and I think you're brilliant. Well,
2: well, that's very Uh, kind of you. I appreciate that. uh,
0: My follow up question is the congressperson that you mentioned the uh, monkey throwing the debris at, I'm curious (laughs) to know if it was a Democrat or Republican. (laughs) (laughs) You know,
2: I really don't know that. And that's what we should do on the infinite side of Midnight, Frank, is take that question. And get an answer, because there is an answer out there. But what would you speculate it to be, just from your own thoughts?
0: I would hope that it was a Democrat.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. You know, that's interesting. But whoever it was, I kind of feel sorry for that person, because... I haven't had anything like that ever thrown at me, and I hope you don't. Yeah, let's let's j- not jinx it. Frank. Let's not jinx it, Steve. Let's keep it. I haven't way. even had a pie thrown at me, but you're very kind in in your uh, question, and of course the comp- compliments. So
1: uh, thank, thank you, Jacqueline. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, Robert has a very interesting question regarding a something that I brought up uh, the other day. Um, At least somewhat related to it. Now, I was going to ask you about this as well. And this was about a meteorite that crashed into someone's house in New
2: Jersey. Robert in
1: Suffolk, what's your question?
2: Yes, Dr. Sky
0: and Frank, good morning. Good
2: morning. I was wondering, uh, I saw on TV how people, they hunt for the uh, meteorite fragments that they can find on
0: Earth. And how much are they worth? I guess there's a price range. There and, sure is. Uh, is it by the, by the gram, by the ounce? Uh, how is that? And well, can you actually keep it? Because the government wants to keep... Great questions. Great questions, Robert.
2: Great questions, but here's the answer. The one that came into the home in, in uh, New Jersey, that is the luckiest of finds because you do own it. It's in your home. And this particular meteorite, the what I've you know checked out... It's what they call a chondrite. Now, it's not the rarest of all meteors, meaning it's a type of meteor. Maybe it's got more rocks in it than iron or nickel iron. But some of them, I'm not sure if they go by gram or by pound or what have you, but probably grams. And I know some people out there that actually have what they consider to be material that was blown off of Mars. And if that's true, those are some of the most expensive meteorites. Remember, there's a meteoroid is when it's flying through space. It's a meteor when it's burning up, and then it's a meteorite if it's down on the ground. We all pretty much know that. But it's so interesting to talk about these things because there was a gentleman. I'm not going to mention his name because he was in a lot of trouble. He'd go all over the world as a meteor expert, went over to Africa, dug up this gigantic thing that you'd put in the back of a pickup truck that weighed thousands of pounds. And as he tried to get out of the country, he was arrested (laughs) for taking it's not his property. There was an issue in El Paso when meteors fell around the schoolyard, and the people who found it said that they should be able to keep it. But so said the government. That's not necessarily true. So there was a big court battle. Can you believe this? A court battle over who owns and has rightful ownership of a meteor. But if it lands in your house like the one in New Jersey, how much is that worth? Well, probably more than it's going to cost them to fix the roof.
1: Oh, good there for them. Know. Good for them. Angela in New Jersey has been patiently holding. Hello, Angela.
2: Good morning. Hi, how are you? I enjoyed this part of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh I don't know, um when I was a kid, uh, back in the fifties and it was summertime so I could stay up late, I would look at the sky a lot. And yeah. one evening there was, you know, the stars and so forth and all of a sudden one of them turned a bright orange red.
1: Like on, uh, like it was on fire. And then it started just going as fast as
2: it could across the sky. I thought it was going to hit things. I didn't know they were yeah. millions of miles apart. What was it that I saw? That's well, my it, question. Could have been, it could have been many things. I'll discount that it was an airliner coming down. God forbid it was. It wasn't, I'm sure. But more than likely, and it's, again, another one that's probably not is a spacecraft entering. More than likely, what you saw, Angela, was a debris, meaning a meteorite or a meteor coming through the sky like a fireball. And I remember back in the 1960s, I think it was April of 66, Frank, we were sitting outside a place in northern New Jersey. And one of the most classic fireballs came out of the sky and actually crashed in Canada. So I think, Angela, what you probably saw was what we consider to be a small fireball in the sky it probably burned up before it hit the ground, but who knows for sure. Uh,
1: lines are jammed. I want to squeeze in at least one more call if we can. And for those of you that we don't get to, and me apologize in advance. We're going to do this again in two weeks. John is in Queens. Hello, John.
2: Good morning, John. Hello. Hello, Steve, my old friend from 1977. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go, brother.
0: How are you? I love you. I love you. Uh, <laughs> I love what you do too. you think
2: about the solar event in Our Lady of Fatima in
0: Fatima, Portugal, 1917?
2: Well, I'll tell you, that's one of the great mysteries and miracles, I think, of the world. But, you know, there's so many things. I think there's also a story right now in Connecticut where somebody has seen something happen in a church where it's obviously not science that's going to explain it. You bet. So what am I saying to everybody and yourself, John? There's things that I'm sure even science can't understand, just like the whole story of the Star of Bethlehem. Maybe these simply are just miracles. Thank
1: you. I love you. Thank you, John. Hey, uh, I know this is an unfair question for me to ask you in only a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and try. The, uh, we've been doing a few segments presenting different sides of the chemtrails debate, uh, people mm-hmm. that think they're totally bunk or people that think they're the result of some sort of geoengineering. Have you looked at this at all? And do you have a theory that you care to share?
2: I have, and I'm going to go on the side. I know many people may not like me for this. We may lose our Gallup poll here this morning since we're getting a lot of positives here. But here's what I think. I would think this country would be horrible if it was that nefarious that it was actually injecting poisons into the upper atmosphere. I've talked to so many pilots and interviewed people on this. But you know what, Frank? Always. I'm always open to listen and learn so much more because not, every, not everybody knows everything. Just like John talked about miracles and strangeness. It's true. But it's always good to be with you on this particular edition of what we call what? The infinite side
1: of it. Uh, Check out Dr. Sky Experience, RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. Keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.
0: Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.